Amen. Thank you, Johnny and the worship team. Good morning, Hayes Creek family. It's good to be with you this morning. My name is Taylor Lazenby. I'm the associate pastor at First Baptist Church of Covington in downtown Covington. Uh, but over the next few weeks, uh, I've agreed to preach here as needed because I just love proclaiming the word and praise God that his church is built on his word. And as it is preached, it can continue to grow even still. So let me draw just your attention to one thing this morning. I, I printed out some sermon notes that I put into your chairs. Usually we have screens behind me or or in when we're in the building to be able, you following along, but we just don't have that opportunity this morning. So I wanted you to at least have something in your hand where you can follow along and see where I'm going this morning. So we're going to continue in the book of James this morning. So we'll be in James 4. So go ahead and turn there. And when you have found your place in James, would you stand for the reading of the word? James chapter 4, verse 1 through verse 12. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and you cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive. Because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is for no purpose that the scripture says, He yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us, but he gives more grace Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against the brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There's only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? Let's pray together. Father, would you be glorified in the reading and in the preaching of your word? Would you open our eyes to behold wondrous things from your word? Transform us more into the image of Christ this morning, Father. pray that you would be glorified, and I pray these things in your son's name. Amen. You may be seated. So over the past several weeks, and even as we continue on over the next couple of weeks, the church at Haynes Creek has been going through a series in James. And for many of us, if not most of us, we tend to be much more familiar with the writings of the Apostle Paul because there's just more of the Apostle Paul's writings than we tend to be familiar with the book of James. So James can be a little hard to understand. The meaning is not quite as clear. We struggle with some of the things that James 
says, and we struggle with some of the ways that James says it. And we should also note that we are not alone in this. We're not the only people of the evangelical world throughout history that has struggled with the book of James and its meaning. Take, for example, Martin Luther. Martin Luther, the great reformer, was once writing to one of his colleagues, and he literally said, I wish I could rip the book of James out of the Bible. And that, that's the great Martin Luther, the man who, who would launch the Protestant Reformation, and from the Protestants would come the Puritans, and from the Puritans would come the evangelicals, as we are now called. This is Martin Luther. Listen also to what Martin Luther said about the epistle of James. He said, therefore, St. James' epistle is really an epistle of straw compared to these others. For it has nothing about the nature of the gospel about it. Now, I disagree with Luther in what he's saying, but just reading Luther and getting to know Luther some is you got to keep into context that Luther was a hothead and he kind of just said what was on his mind. So when he's saying this, he's just, he's overcome by the fact that it's hard to reconcile at some points the theology of Paul with the theology that you've been discovering as you've been going through the book of James. And what, what theology is this? Well, the great, the great apostle Paul talked about sola fide, faith alone, that we are justified by faith alone. But James says in, in chapter 2, verse 24, this is what he says, that person is justified by works and not by faith alone. So it would be comments like this, these kind of comments, that would lead Martin Luther to say, well, it's just hard to reconcile the theology of Paul with the theology of James. This is what we must recognize is that James is not being contradictory in any way to what the Apostle Paul is saying. What James is saying is that as we have been transformed by God through his Holy Spirit because of the proclaimed word, he has given us new hearts and given us the gift of faith. And from that faith, we should produce good works. So to put it another way, the root of our hearts should produce good work spiritually. So faith and works are related James is not speaking contrary to what the Apostle Paul is saying. James is making the argument. He is basically taking theology and he's making it extremely practical throughout this entire book. He's applying theology to everyday life, both in and outside of the church. And we should really soak that up in some ways because it, we should know from the word and from faith and how we've been transformed, how we should conduct our lives now as Christians. So our faith should produce good works. Or let me put it this way. If you are in Christ, you should have a faith that works. You should have a faith that works. So three things this morning. How does, how does James say that our faith should work in this text? What is he trying to get across to us this morning? First and foremost, he wants us to be wary of the world. He wants us to be wary of the world. So the first thing that we must note here, starting in verse 1, is the root cause of fights and quarrels. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and you cannot obtain, so you fight and you quarrel. 
You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. The root of the fighting, the root of the infighting, the root of the quarrels, James says here is not an outside force, but rather flows from a wickedness of the heart. A wickedness of the heart that manifests itself outwardly in fighting, in quarreling. Some of your translations may say, what causes quarrels and wars among you? This is what causes it. It's this root cause within us. It's our own hearts. And we must, we must also keep in context this, this passage in a much larger way. Chapter 4 feeds directly from chapter 3. So sometimes in your Bibles, we must note that in the original manuscripts, there was no chapter divisions and there was no verses that were put in. Those were put in much after the original manuscripts were written. And sometimes when these things have happened and they've put these chapter divisions in here, sometimes the chapter divisions don't make a lot of sense. And I think this is one of those places. Because really, he's continuing his argument from chapter 3. And as y'all talked about last week, it was really James calling out speech. And we should be wary of the way that we talk because it can set wildfires ablaze that cause really a whole mount of destruction. You can think about a wildfire and this scorched earth that happens when it passes through. Well, there's nothing that remains except for ash and char and just burnt ruins. And that is what our tongue can do. It's the dangers of our speech and of our tongues. But if we would look heavenward, if we would look to Jesus, who is the personification of wisdom, then and only then can it transform our speech because we have our eyes on Jesus, who is wisdom in the flesh. And that transforms it. So he moves from speech in chapter 3, and he's now talking about conduct in chapter 4. How we should act, this fighting and quarreling that is among us. So we are, none of us is perfect. Instead, we should show grace. So our greatest struggle comes from within, our own hearts within us. That's where the greatest struggle is found is what, James is saying. We want things our way. We want things our way and so that we can be in control. We want to have our say. We want to have the last say in any kind of argument. We think we know what is right at all times. Whether it's something as crazy as nuclear pharmacology or being a pastor in the pandemic, we have our own opinions about how things should go. Anytime someone confronts us with that, anytime that someone rises up and confronts us, we feel threatened. So we enter a posture of being defensive. It causes us to be defensive. And when we get defensive because someone is coming at us and attacking us in our perception, what's our response when we're defensive? It's to lob grenades and to take pot shots at the other person. And then at that point, what do you have? You have quarrels and you have fights. And it all comes from this wickedness within us. But does that, when James says something like this, for many of us who know the Apostle Paul's writings a lot more, does it cause you to think a little bit that, that James is saying, no, that these things happen because it's coming and flowing out of you? But doesn't Paul say that 
that we battle not against flesh and blood, but we battle against the spiritual forces in the kingdoms of, of the spiritual realm? Does, doesn't the Apostle Paul say that? He does. In many different places throughout the New Testament in his writing. So really, which, which one is it? Is it that we are battling against spiritual forces of this world, or is it a flowing from the wickedness of within? Which one? Well, it's both. They're not contradicting one another but rather they're completing one another. Just the same way that James and Paul come alongside of each other and complete the circle of faith and work. It's the same argument that James is making, that he's fulfilling this circle of where we struggle in Christ being still in this world. We struggle against Satan and the powers of dominion and of darkness, and we also struggle with the wickedness that is within us. We struggle with both of them. But have you ever... Have you ever met the, a person, and maybe you have a friend like this, that anything that possibly goes wrong in their life, they think it's Satan that's attacking them? You ever you met people like that, where they come home from work, and they get in a fight with their spouse, and, oh, Satan's attacking me tonight. Or they come home from work, and it's been a really long day, so they treat their kids poorly, but it's, it's Satan that is at their doorstep that's attacking them. Anything that could possibly go wrong in life is not anything that has to do with what they may have done, but it's some outside force. If you have a friend like that, just show them this verse and just ask them, what do you think about this? What do you think about this verse? Because many times when we have friends, they mean well. They mean well. But when they want to attribute everything that is wrong sinfully in this world to just Satan, what they really want to do is put the blame somewhere else rather than taking any kind of responsibility of wrongdoing that they may have done in any situation. They want to do what Adam does in Genesis 3. When God comes to Adam and he questions him on what has happened and what is his response after the fall? It's this woman. It's this woman that you, you gave me, Lord. She made me eat it. It's this blame shifting. So a lot of times when you have friends or you know people that think that's just Satan coming against you, Whenever something goes wrong, it's a, just an opportunity to show them lovingly in the word that, no, there, there's a brokenness within us that we must also be responsible for. There's a moral responsibility even within us that we must consider at points in life. Now, does Satan attack? And is he out to steal and kill and destroy? Absolutely, he is. He is, and we must be on guard against that. But what James is saying here is that this brokenness that we feel that causes the quarrels, that causes the fights, isn't always Satan or an outside force, but rather comes from within. Comes from within. So the brokenness that we experience in this world relationally, professionally, socially, culturally, ethically, and sometimes even within the church, flows from a brokenness of the heart. Reminds me of a story one time where this man is and his wife are at home and they're letting their kids play. They've had a bunch of kids over and they're all playing and they start kind of getting loud and they start yelling back and forth at one another. And it kind of boils over to a point where the father has to step outside and ask the kids, hey, what's going on, kids? And the, the smallest of the daughters like calls back to him and she says, it's okay, daddy, we're just playing church. These things can infect the church as well. These things happen in the church. The brokenness ex we experience also is within the church. 
Second, we should be wary of our own passions and our own desires. James points out passions and desires several times in these first couple of verses. It's a key word that you should look at in your Bible. It's kind of sticking out to you. And if you look at the Greek word that underlies the passion and the desires, it's the Greek word hedonai. Hedonai is where we get our word hedonism or hedonist from. It's the same root. Now, now what is hedonism? Hedonism is, is an ethical philosophy. Hedonism is uh, an ethical paradigm where the greatest joy in life is chasing after your own pleasure. Whether it be sex, food, drink, you try to achieve those things at the highest possible level. That is what hedonism teaches. And we, we have a lot of hedonists in our day. Our, our culture tells us that, that we have many of those people that seek after those things and seek after it full force. But this is still really strong language that James uses here talking about passions and talking about desires. And his readers, the Jewish readers that were reading this, would have seen that word stick out and they would, they would have attributed it to what the Romans were doing. They had experience with the Romans as they occupied Jerusalem and the surrounding Near East. They would have had, they would have had experience with the Romans as the church expanded after the death of Christ and there was now churches in Rome and all around them they would see from the Romans themselves in hedonistic living. They would see this hedonistic living. They would see this pleasure-filled, pleasure-seeking living everywhere they went and even Roman philosophers themselves People that were really looked up to as the smartest men of their day, writing books and treatises, would say that seeking after your own pleasure is the only thing that your life is about. And James pushes back against that thought here. He pushes back against that. And then he's, he gets a little sarcastic or a little funny, in my opinion, when he starts questioning them. And he says, you do not have because you do not ask. And you do not, when you, when you ask, you do not receive, because if you would receive, then you would spend it on your passions. He's just calling them out. He's trying to get them to see that their thinking is much more along the lines of the world, when it should be more along the lines of the kingdom of God. And thirdly, in this first part, James wants us to be aware of God's call to distinction. He's trying to remind them that they should not follow the way of the world. And it kind of comes together here in verse 4. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? That if you are a friend of the world, then you are an enemy of the Lord. James is wanting this church, or churches, that has been dispersed in probably the near Palestine area to understand and that they, as the church, as the called out ones of God, are meant to look so much different than they are looking. They are meant to be distinct from the world. They are meant to be set apart from the rest of the world. They're the called out ones of God. He has taken his people, he has called them out of the dominion of darkness, and he has placed them into the kingdom of the marvelous light of his beloved son, Jesus. They have been justified by their faith in Jesus. And because of that, they should look different. They should look distinct from the rest of the world. He wants them to be different. 
He wants them to be different. They're using their tongues and they're speaking in ways that follow the pattern of the world. They're acting and conducting themselves and quarreling and fighting just like the rest of the world. They're doing things and it has been misplaced because their passions and their desires are wrong. They're so wrong. And he wants them to see that if they want to be a part of this world, if they want to be friends of this world, then doing that makes them an enemy with God. He doesn't want that. So be aware of the way of the world. Second thing James wants us to see this morning in verses 5 through 10 is that we should be aware of the way of great grace. We should be aware of the way of great grace. So James's antidote for combating these things of the world is firstly, like a good pastor, he points his people to the scriptures. Do you see that in the scripture itself? That he points his people back to the scriptures? Look in verse Four, end of verse 4, start of verse 5. Or do you suppose that it is no purpose that the Scripture says he yearns jealously over the Spirit that he has made to dwell in us? Like a good pastor, he averts his people's eyes from the world and he points them back to the Scriptures. And then secondly, he appeals to the Spirit. And this is how the argument that he makes goes. He has set out the comparison of these passions and these desires and these worldly things coming up and bubbling up from within their hearts. And he's saying, that is the things of the world. But you who are in Christ have been given something in the Holy Spirit that you should now be controlled by rather than being controlled by the things of this world. You now have God's indwelling spirit within you. And because God's spirit is within you, he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has given you. Therefore, you have the power to conduct yourself in a godly way that will set you apart from the rest of the world. He wants his people to understand that if they are in Christ, if they have been justified by faith, they now have a controlling person with inside of them that gives them a, the ability to do what is right and what is godly. But all of us, don't we all still struggle with sin? Don't we all still struggle with the besetting sin that is within us? We feel those worldly passions and we feel those worldly desires crop up within us from time to time, do we not? And many times we still give into those desires. And James has the sweetest verse in this entire chapter nestled here in verse 6. But he gives more grace. He gives more grace. You still struggle with those besetting sins? He gives more grace. You still struggle with those addictions that continue to control you from time to time? He gives you more grace. And if you are in Christ, there is an insurmountable amount of grace that he has bestowed upon you in calling you out of the world. We can take confidence in that. But we must also realize that the penalty of sin, the penalty of sin has been completely paid for. The penalty of sin has been completely paid for. We must believe in the promises of Romans 8, 1, that there therefore is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The penalty of sin has been completely paid if you are in Christ. Completely paid. And the power of sin has been broken. 
The power of sin has been broken. Not only has the penalty been paid, but the power of sin has been broken. How has the power of sin been broken? Through the proclamation of the gospel, that if you are in Christ and you have God's Holy Spirit, you now have the power to do what is right in God's eyes. You're no longer bound. You're no longer in bondage to sin any longer. You now have the power to do what is right. But we still struggle with the presence of sin. The penalty of sin has been paid. The power of sin has been broken. But we still struggle with the presence of sin all around us. So we need to be wary of these things. And that the Lord gives great grace for them. After verse 6, James gives nine to ten different commands. Nine to ten, depending on who and what kind of Greek you're looking at in the translations and things of that nature, nine to ten different commands that we're familiar with. We're familiar with. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. That's a lot of strange kind of things that he's saying, right? But I, I think, as I've, I've studied this passage this week and as I've meditated in it and, and really thought deeply about these things, I really think that James is invoking the teaching of another. I think he's invoking the teaching of Jesus himself from the Sermon on the Mount. Some of the language is very similar. So listen to verses 1 through 10 from Matthew chapter 5. And think of these kind of different commands in light of what you're hearing from Matthew chapter 5. And he opened his mouth and he taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall seek God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And the one word that could really envelop and wrap everything that not only Jesus is saying here in in Matthew 5, but also what James is saying in chapter 4 of his own epistle, the one word that all of this is wrapped up in is humility, a humbleness of spirit. And how do Christians demonstrate their humility? They demonstrate their humility by bowing the knee at the most humble one of all, Jesus himself. That's how we demonstrate our humility, that we bow the knee at Jesus, as Paul talks about in Philippians 2, that though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God something to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him 
and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The called out ones of God, the church of God, Christians themselves, show their humility by trusting in Jesus. That if you place your faith in him and you admit that you're broken, then you can have part in the things that he has purchased for you by taking your sin, paying for it on the cross, giving you his righteousness so that you now are accepted by God himself. In the last part, verses 11 through 12, is just kind of a summarizing admonition. And this is really the reason that I say chapter 3 and chapter 4, the, the chapter breaks don't quite fit because what does James go back to here in these last couple of verses? He goes back to speech. He goes back to speech. He starts talking about the way that we talk. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. One who speaks against the brother judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There's only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? He turns the attention back to the tongue, commanding the people not to speak evil against one another or pass judgment on one another, but rather reserve that for the only true judge and savior. There's a lot in 12 verses, so much in 12 verses, and some stuff that we just don't have time nor are able to even dive into this morning. So let me just end by giving three major points of application, three major points. Firstly, in light of this text, in light of verses 1 through 10, the first thing that this word causes us to is to redirect our desires. We should redirect our desires. James diagnoses the problem of our hearts very well, that our hearts are wicked and flowing from our very hearts comes the fighting and the quarrels and the dissension that we can so easily feel relationally, professionally, socially, and in every other aspect and arena of life. And it's because we have misplaced our desires. Now that's, that's natural for sinners to do. But if we indeed have been saved by the blood of Jesus and we have been transformed by the Holy Spirit working inside of us, then our desires need to be different. We need to redirect our desires, reorient our desires to something that is much greater than just simple pleasure or being right or being seen as the one who has all the answers. We must redirect our desires in such a way that they now glorify God rather than act against him. Now, how do we do that? Psalm 37.4 is a quoted Bible verse, a lot. And a lot of people wrongly quote it. They'll say, yeah, God will give me the desires of my heart. No, that's not what that verse says. The verse says, delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Delight yourself in the Lord. And he will give you the desires of your heart. That if you would so bask 
in the Lord, if you would bathe in the Lord, that if you would marinate in the Lord, that if you would be overcome so much by the Lord that now your delighting in him has changed your desires, not into your earthly desires, but now your desires match that of the one you are delighting in. We need to come to the word and swim deeply in the Lord. We need to pursue the Lord in his word by reading and studying his word, by being sharpened by the people of God, by prayer, but mostly by studying deeply who God is. Theology, in general, is the study of God. If you are a Christian, if you claim the name of Christ, then you are claiming a theological truth. And therefore, you should care to some extent about theology, to some extent. Now, I'm not saying that everyone has to agree on certain aspects of theology, but you should have a longing for knowing who God is more and more and more deeply. You should long to know your Creator and long to know your Savior more deeply each and every day. I pray that for you, that you would redirect your desires, and that I would redirect my desires every single day, that I would swim in the deep end of God's desires and be transformed. And I want that for you as well. Secondly, the second thing that we can apply this morning is a challenge, a dare to be distinct, that as Christians, we should long to be distinct. Now, James is writing to a particularly Jewish Christian audience, it would have been an audience that was probably in Jerusalem or around Jerusalem in the Palestine area, and mostly Jews who had converted from Judaism to Christianity, so Jewish Christians. And so they would have been really familiar with the law. They would have been really familiar with the Old Testament. And even now, as we look back through the lens of the cross and think about the Old Testament, the thing about the people of God in the Old Testament, the reason for the moral laws and the civil laws and the ethical laws, the reason for all of that is so that the people of God, Israel, Old Testament Israel, would look different than the rest of the surrounding pagan nations. That when the pagan nations would look at Israel, they would see that Israel has been set apart and Israel could then point to their God who had saved them and had brought them out of Egypt and caused them to be a people. And now as the church, we too should be distinct. Now I want you to think about this distinction in two different ways this morning. I want you to think about it personally first. Are you Christian? Do you look more like the world than like a called out one of God? Do you, do you tend to have the same tendencies and the same habits and the same disciplines as someone who would be a part of the world who is not in Christ? Are you made more in the image of what is surrounding you than made in the image of Christ? Are you personally distinct enough from the world or do you tend to blend in? And secondly, think about it corporately this distinction corporately, that as the church, the Greek word for church, assembly, is ekklesia. Ekklesia is really a combination of two words. That means 
called out once. That God has indeed called us out as the church, as a corporate body, and therefore we should, as the church, look much, much different than any other organization that surrounds us in this world. We should look way different, and we should not follow the patterns of organizations in this world. So my encouragement for Haynes Creek is that you would continue as a church in this time of transition to remain distinct, remain different, have this pleasing aroma about yourselves where everything that this corporate body does is so different than other or other churches. The temptation today for churches is to try to find the next quick fix or to find the next church growth strategy and to grow extremely quickly and prove ourselves by our numbers. And I think that's a wrong way to look at it. There's nothing inherently wrong with numbers or looking at things in that light. But what we should as the church be way more concerned about is just the souls of our people the souls of our people and how the Lord, through the preaching of this word, draws more souls to himself. Should we outreach? Yes, do everything. Do anything and everything, but don't just find a quick church growth strategy. Don't buy into the temptation to be flashy or attractive. Don't buy into the temptation to have humor-filled preaching. Don't buy into the temptation where everything is about production and how well you can entertain your people. I don't want that for this church. I want the church as a whole, not just Haynes Creek, but the church to be distinct from the rest of the world. Because in our distinction, we become attractive. In our distinction, we become attractive. We shouldn't try to look more like the world to be attractive. I would, as, as a pastor, as someone who longs for the souls of his people and the souls of his sheep, wherever I may be preaching the word. It is my God-given duty from the word to present people to God as complete and mature in Christ. That is what I'm called to do as a pastor. And I'd much rather present a hundred mature people to God the Father, complete in Christ, rather than having a church of 10,000 that is a mile wide and an inch deep. That is my prayer. Remain distinct, Haynes Creek. And the third thing, just very quickly, continue to gaze upon grace. Remain steadfast in your commitment, both personally and corporately, to seeking the face of Jesus Christ, seeking the, fa seeking the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And it's through this repeated discovery of grace from God in the gospel that our faith is renewed. And as, as our faith is renewed, as it continues to be renewed every time we come to church and every time we hear the word of God preached, our spirit should come alive and we should be conformed more into the image of Jesus. And it is from experiencing this grace and our faith being renewed that our faith can continue to work. Let's pray. Father, thank you for 
the opportunity to proclaim your word this morning. I pray that you would use it to transform, to challenge, to convict, and to bring much glory to yourself. I pray that you were glorified in the preaching of your word. I pray these things in your son's name. Amen.